Alrighty, guys, if everyone could grab your Bibles, grab a notebook and a pen if you like to take notes. We're going to be jumping back into our Matthew series, um, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22 to 27. Uh, if you'd like a title for the message, The Glory of Surrender, The Glory of Surrender. And to have reading the scripture, I would like to introduce my beautiful wife. <laughs> Come on, Maddie. Thank you. I only just asked her to do this right now because I forgot to ask anyone else to do it. So, Bear with me, everyone. I'm trying to clear my throat. All right. So Matthew 17, 22 to 27. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he, and when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Thank you. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite movies is one of the all-time great kind of war, patriotic, um, you know, man action movies. It's a movie called Braveheart. If you haven't seen it, you're about, I don't know, 30 years too late. I'm going to give away some of what happens. Uh, but it tells the story of William Wallace standing up for the rights of the free people of Scotland against the tyranny of England. They're coming in to try and take over their lands and their peoples and their way of life. And he wants none of it. He wants his freedom. He wants his, 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 his area, his home. And he doesn't want to be ruled by these English lords from a different area. He wants freedom. And there's lots of battles that take place, but it comes to this final point where this small band of Scottish Highlanders is up against the, the might of the, the England army. And it looks pathetic. It looks like they're going to lose. It looks like you know, everything's against them. But then William Wallace gives this incredible speech and it's Mel Gibson with a Scottish accent wearing a kilt. And uh, it's, it's, I promise you, it, yeah, it's powerful um, if you haven't seen it. And the interesting thing about it is what he focuses on, um, because he focuses on freedom and this sense of independence. And there's something in us that when we, when we hear that and read that and see it, we're like, yes, that seems right. And it seems so good that they're fighting against this tyranny and oppression. He says this to the, the army, uh, his little army. I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do without freedom? Will you fight? Aye, fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, 
just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies. And this is where I just, this is where the moment hits and everything soars. And I'm not going to put a Scottish accent on and yell. I'm going to refrain that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And he roars that out. And then the, all the soldiers cry out. Yeah. And it's a powerful line. You may take our lives, but you'll never take, or they'll never take our freedom. William Wallace stood there in defiance of tyranny, in defiance of restriction, in defiance of overreach of government, in defiance of oppression coming against it. And he, he declared, we have rights. We have freedom. Let's stand and let's fight for our freedoms. And there's an appeal to this. Maybe it's just because I'm a young man, but there's still something in me that's like, yes, we should do it. And I think today in our, in our culture, in our society, this is striking a chord with many. Uh, you've seen on the news many protests, riots, stand, uh, sit-ins, strikes, um, all these type of things going on, people protesting the restrictions and the limiting to our freedom. People are constantly saying that this is a reign of tyranny and that there's all manner of oppression and, and et cetera going on. Now, when it comes to our rights and freedoms as Christians, so we've got civilians doing this in Australia, civilians doing it in America, and perhaps they have constitutional, et cetera, and things that they could argue for. But how are we meant to respond to this as Christians, as those who follow Jesus Christ? What is our response to this call for, against tyranny, this rising up for rights and privileges? Well, it's very interesting that our text today, well, that God would lead us at this point in our church's history to this text. And this text is a curious one. It's one that I've never paid any attention to um, other than the crazy fish story at the end, which is not the main point of the text. And it's often overlooked. Yet in this text is a powerful principle that has shaped the way of Christianity for the past two millennia. In this text, in this text is an indirect principle that has shaped the way of Christianity for the past two millennia. And it ought to shape the way we see ourselves and our rights and our freedoms. In this text, friends, we're going to be instructed in an indirect way by Jesus, and we'll get to the Apostle Paul later, as to how we are meant to operate in our day and age right now. So how do we get there? Well, very two simple points today. The story explained, point number one. Point number two, the story applied. Couldn't come up with anything more creative than that. I'm sorry. So point number one, the story explained the story explained if we back up a little bit from this text we'll notice okay they've come to Capernaum uh, at the beginning we heard they were in Galilee and just before that we Jesus had been on the Mount of Transfiguration he'd been glorified and, and God had declared him as his son he'd come down the mountain to find this scene of faithlessness where the disciples had not really been praying they'd been obviously maybe trying to cast out a demon without prayer, without trusting in God. And then Jesus goes ahead and does it himself. We've been on this roller coaster from the heights of you are the Christ, Peter declares, to the depths of Jesus is going to die in our place. 
Um, he's going to be resurrected. That's great. But we're going to have to die if we're going to follow him to the transfiguration up and down, up and down. But now we're coming right to the end of Jesus's ministry outside of Jerusalem. And he's about to turn his face and head all the way into um, the passion, into Jerusalem itself. In fact, the time period that this story is set in is, is roughly about one month before Passover. And Passover is Easter time uh, when Jesus is crucified. And so the, the, the prediction and the shadow of Christ's death looms over this passage. And that's why Matthew includes verse 22 to 23, another prediction that Jesus gives that the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed, it says about the disciples. So you've got to imagine that the shadow of the cross looms over this passage. But then we come to this strange scene in Capernaum where they've done a lot of their ministry. Uh, presumably it was Jesus's base home. Potentially they lived in Simon Peter's house. And they come back to Capernaum and this scene unfolds. I'll read to you verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, we've got to understand a little bit of context here. So the two drachma tax is a tax that was recently re-brought back into the fold of Israel from the Pharisees for the upkeep of the temple. Uh, in Exodus chapter 30, verse, uh, what is it, 6 through 11, there's a law that Moses gives that all the Israelite males over the age of 20 are to bring a half shekel for the upkeep of the temple to pay for the sacrifices, to pay for the priests on top of all the tithes, et cetera, et cetera. And this, this tax was obviously used at some point. It had come out of focus. Um, at the time of Ezra, the rebuilding, they reduced the, the tax to a third of what it was. And then at some point, the Pharisees re-brought it back in, that it should be the full two drachma tax. Uh, and the expectation was that every adult male over the age of 20 in Jerusalem was to pay this tax. It was a custom. Uh, maybe you could be prosecuted for it. It's unclear. Uh, but it was certainly seen as a patriotic thing because you were giving money this time not to the Romans, but to the temple that worship could take place. And so the Pharisees, though, they're, or these tax collectors, I should say, they're anticipating that Jesus is most likely not going to pay this tax. They might have heard that Jesus has said something greater than the temple is here. They've probably seen Jesus uh, flout the restrictions on food and, and ceremonial cleansing, etc. And so they're probably anticipating he's not going to pay it. So they go up to Peter, maybe because it's Peter's home and he's the head of the home. Don't know why they go to Peter, but they ask him, does he pay the tax? And uh, Peter replies instinctively, and he just says, yes. Now, I don't know if Peter had foreknowledge that Jesus did pay the tax or previously did, but Peter says yes. But we get some indication that Jesus wants to make a point about this tax um, in verse 25 and following. And it's an interesting little anecdote. It's not recorded in any other Gospels. And in this passage, in this little anecdote, we're going to see an, a really interesting indirect principle that shapes how we live. I'll read verse 25. Peter, he said, yes. And when he came into the house, notice this, Jesus spoke to him first. So Jesus proactively goes after Peter saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? from their sons or from 
others. Now, Jesus comes in proactively. He's got, which we can see, he's got a lesson he wants to teach. And he, he tells a parable. Uh, and it relates to Gentile kings and the kingdoms of this earth. But he, so it's moving from the ceremonial, the temple to the, to the Gentile kings. But he says, do, do kings tax their sons? You know, do, do kings tax their sons or do they tax others? And the whole way it worked back in the um, ancient times was that the king would tax everyone in his realm, especially those he conquered, to pay for his own living and to pay for his own household and his own armies and his own upkeep. And so the obvious reply from Peter is, well, the, the kings tax others. The kings tax others. And then Jesus draws a principle from this. Verse 26. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, that is Peter, then the sons are free. That's it. Now, we're left to deduce or put together what is Jesus saying here? And I think the best way to understand this is, is just is to move from the Gentile world of kings and back to the, the temple. The temple is God's royal house. It's the, the sign of, of his rule of his kingdom. And the people of God are taxed to support it. But Jesus is here claiming to be the son of God. He is indirectly in this, in this kind of hidden way. He's saying, I'm God's son. Therefore, as the son, I'm free from having to pay the temple tax. If, if God is the father and I'm his son and the temple is for the worship of God and it's his home, it's his house, then I'm free. I don't need to pay the tax. And more than that, you can even deduce from this, then the sons, plural, are free. So all who are in Christ no longer need to pay this temple tax. They're, they're free from this ceremonial law because we are connected intimately in a way, in a new way that even the Old Testament saints weren't because we're connected to Christ the Son. We're co-inheritors with him. And so therefore, the sons are free. And there's something beautiful, both Christologically, to see about Jesus here, that he is the Son of God. And then for ourselves to see we are his sons, God's sons and daughters by our connection to Jesus Christ. And so the principle is this, you're free. The sons are free, just like Jesus Christ is free from the laws and, and the rules. He sits above them all. He's free. And therefore, so are we. In a certain sense, the principle we can derive from this text is that Yes, there's rules and there's kings and there's presidents and premiers, but in another sense, we actually sit above them all because we're connected to Christ and he is the son of God, the king of the universe. But surprisingly, he doesn't end there. You see, Jesus could have then had his William Wallace moment. It was a perfect time for it. He could have gone, maybe not with a kilt, but I guess he was already wearing a tunic and fought for his freedom and his rights. He could have said, this is wrong. I am the son of God. This is my temple. In fact, I am the temple. I'm greater than the temple. I'm going to render it obsolete. You do not need to pay the tax. We're not paying the tax. We're throwing a fight. We're having a hissy fit. We're going for it. But that's not what he does. And here we find the second principle in this passage, which has instructed us and Christians for the past 2,000 years, the principle of not giving offence. Look at verse 27. However, Jesus says, not to give offence to them, 
or in the original, not to cause them to stumble. It's that word stumbling stone, stumbling um, rock. Go to the sea, cast a hook. Every other time in the New Testament it talks about fishing, it's a net. So cast a hook, so to catch one fish. Take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. Now, that's a really interesting way of procuring the tax. And perhaps maybe some of us, if you've got some tax debts, you can go down to Para uh, River and throw in a line and see if you can pay off your tax debt through some, I don't know, Bitcoin that might be found in the mouth of a fish. Uh, but I, that's not the point of what we're meant to take away from the passage of how to pay our debts. The point is that first little section there. However, not to give offense to them. Now, it's a little bit difficult to ascertain exactly what Jesus meant by not to cause them to stumble. I mean, how would Jesus not paying the tax have caused people to, to stumble or to sin, potentially, that word can also mean, or miss out on the gospel or not, you know, fulfill their civic duty or disobey unneedingly? Um, it's not entirely clear. Perhaps because it was a custom that all patriotic Jews were meant to pay, if people saw this famous teacher not paying it, albeit with this good reason that he's the son of God, he doesn't have to, uh, they'd be tempted to forego their civic duty. And Jesus doesn't want to cause this confusion where all these young guys are like, well, if Jesus didn't pay it, I don't have to pay it. Potentially, I don't know. Text doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that in here, Jesus is revealing a vital principle is this principle of not causing unnecessary offence or stumbling. However, it raises attention. We've already seen in Matthew chapter 15 that when Jesus disobeyed the, the cleansing and the ceremonial laws, that he offended the Pharisees. The disciples came to him and said, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended? Same word, caused to stumble by this. And Jesus isn't concerned. So in chapter 15, Jesus offends and isn't worried. But in chapter 17, Jesus does not want to cause offense, does not want to cause stumbling. Why the different approach? Well, like I said, it, I think what we see in this passage is an indirect principle. It's, it's a wisdom principle. We cannot know for sure uh, why Jesus didn't. Perhaps uh, Jesus saw paying the temple tax as something that wasn't vitally important. It wasn't linked fundamentally to his mission or the gospel message that he was trying to proclaim. Because the temple tax was a customary thing, um, it wasn't, you know, something that would cause people to sin if they paid it. Whereas he took a stand on the food laws because of its fundamental misrepresentation of the nature of true cleansing and righteousness. He wanted to make a point there. And so he sees this, this temple tax as something that's not that important and therefore not necessary for us to stand for our rights on. And so he uses his divine sovereignty, gets a coin from a fish, and pays the tax. So what does it all mean? Why does Matthew include this story? He could have, you know, just left it out, or maybe he just included it because he was a tax collector. He's like, oh, this is an interesting one. But I believe that there's actually a really important principle that will really help us in our day and age in all the mess that we find ourselves in today. And the principle indirectly arrived at is this. At times, okay, and that's a 
caveat to make it not a universal principle. At times, we are called to surrender our rights like our saviour for the sake of others. I'll say that again. This is the principle that I think we're meant to derive from this passage. At times, we are called to surrender our rights like our saviour for the sake of others. So at times means this isn't universal. There are times when we ought not to surrender our rights. Uh, The Apostle Peter later goes on when he's charged not to preach the gospel. He says, we cannot obey man. We must obey God. But here, there are times when we, though free sons and daughters of God, though children of the Most High God, though we will one day inherit the earth, though we reign with Christ, we voluntarily choose to surrender our rights, like our Savior Jesus Christ did, for the sake of others. Like Jesus said, however, not to give offense to them. However, in other translations, to not cause them to stumble. So that's the story explained. Now, point number two, the story applied. What does it mean? How are we meant to practically live this out? That at times we are called to surrender our rights like our saviour for the sake of others. Well, this principle calls for wise and judicious application. Hence why I said at times, uh, and I'm trying to give all these caveats, because there are very much times when we ought not to surrender. But when are we meant to surrender? Interestingly, this text is really a seed that is planted in the way of Christianity that has fundamentally shaped who Christians are and how we follow Jesus Christ for the past two millennia. This seed was planted in the example and life of Jesus Christ, the the seed of the glory of surrender, the glory of surrender. You see in Jesus that there is a glory in surrendering our rights and privileges for the sake of serving others. The way of Jesus turns the world upside down. It turns our rights and our freedoms and our liberties upside down. You see, as sons and daughters of the king, we have every right, so to speak, to not pay the temple tax. Yet we're free to not make use of our right when it would cause unnecessary offence and stumbling. And his life, Jesus' example here, to pay this tax that he didn't have to pay becomes a pattern and model that we see demonstrated in the New Testament. Chiefly, we see it in the Apostle Paul and we see it in the Apostle Peter. Now, I would love, I originally wrote my sermon with it all around, applying it through Peter. There's a really great passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. Highly recommend you read that whole chapter and study it. But we're going to talk about Paul because I think in the life of Paul, we see this wise and judicious application. We see the glory of surrender played out as we, like our Savior, surrender our rights for the sake of others. And I want to draw attention to two possible applications from this in the life of Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and um, 9 and 10. First application. So how do we put this strange passage into application? Well, we see Paul surrendering his rights for the sake of others inside the church. 
One possible application for us in viewing our Saviour is to surrender our rights and freedoms and privileges for the sake of others in the church, which is why we're not gathering until we can all gather at 80%, which is why we're not going to do life groups until December 1st, because we can surrender our rights and our freedoms and our privileges so that we can serve those and for the sake of others to not cause them to stumble. Paul picks up on the upside-down nature of Christ when writing to the church in Corinth. And I can't recommend more highly reading through chapters 8, 9, and 10. And if you have time, read Romans chapters 13, 14, and 15, because in it we see this principle played out so powerfully. In chapters 8 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about this contentious matter of whether or not Christians are free to eat food that is sacrificed to the pagan demonic idols in the temples in Corinth. It's a really contested issue. First of all, for the Jews, they were really caught up on their food laws already. But then to eat meat that had been sacrificed to a demonic god, that was really hard for a lot of Christians. And there was a contention within the church. Paul argued that you were free to eat that meat. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and anything taken in thanksgiving is free. However, however, he says, if you eating meat makes your brother to stumble, then that should really make you think about what you do with eating meat. Let's read verses 9 to 13. And look for the words rights and giving them up. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block, an offence to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, imagine that, imagine seeing us chowing down in a temple, right? Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. (laughs) That's a powerful uh, application of this principle. I will forego steak rather than causing stumbling. That's, That's the glory of surrender. That's the upside down nature of Christ's kingdom that those who are free it would not be sin but if it causes you to stumble oh i would never want to do that furthermore even deep uh, more intrinsic to paul's life he relinquishes his rights his personal rights to uh, property and to money and to being paid look at 1 corinthians 9 and i'll just read a few verses here um the the contention was that He didn't take a paycheck, even though he was deserved it from the Corinthians. And he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Do we not have the right to eat and to drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? But I have made no use of Oh, wait, I skipped a verse. Um, It's not in. Have you got the rest of verse 12 there? Sorry, put it back up, Marcus. I deleted it in my notes somehow. The key verse. Verse 12. Yeah. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but, and here's the key, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way 
of the gospel of Christ. So I don't eat meat because I don't want to cause people to stumble. I don't take Paul. This is Paul. I will surrender my right to have a wife, potentially to have a paycheck, potentially, because I don't want to put anything in the way that will cause people either to sin or to miss out on the goodness of the gospel. That's, that's challenging. That challenges the William Wallace, my right, my freedoms, my liberties, give it to me now. Well, the glory of surrender is laying down our rights like our saviour for the sake of others. That's the way of Christ at times. <laughs> and we'll go, we'll jump into some application more specifically in a moment. I just want to show you another example of, so firstly, Paul does it for inside the church. He lays down his rights. But then he goes on in the rest of chapter nine to talk about how he lays down his rights for the sake of those outside the church, for unbelievers. And we preached on this at this exact time last year, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Look again how Paul is so willing to forego his rights for the sake of others. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all or servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. That's what Christ did. He comes under the law. He pays the tax that I might win those under the law. And then to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. I ate meat in the temples, whatever. Not being outside the law of God, that's important, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. You see, for Paul, he was willing to flex. He was willing to surrender. He was willing to lose his rights and station and money and time and comforts for the sake of those inside the church and those outside the church he didn't want anyone to sin he didn't want anyone to stumble over the gospel so he changes everything about himself whoever he's with so as to best benefit others just like his savior leon morris australian commentator from the 50s says this whatever the reason the principle at stake is one which can and should be more widely applied while there are times when a disciple must make an unpopular stand and so alienate others, many of the issues and practices on which we might legitimately differ from conventional assumptions are not worth fighting over. A Christian community which sets up stumbling blocks only when it is really necessary is likely to be more effective in mission. And that's a timely application, I think, for how we deal with all the COVID restrictions. We all have potentially different views on it, but for the sake of not causing a stumbling stone to those outside the church, we ought to be willing to flex and, and change and adapt and surrender our rights to best serve them with the gospel. So I know it's a little bit convoluted, but I want to ask you this now in relation to those two examples, surrendering our rights for those inside the church, surrendering our rights for those outside the church, are there any rights, quote unquote, freedoms, liberties 
that you may need to lay down in order to not cause stumbling or offense inside or outside the church? Are there any rights or things that you feel entitled to as a child of God or as a citizen of this country that perhaps you need to consider laying down and surrendering for the sake of not causing others to stumble or not causing the witness of Christ to be a stumbling block to the gospel? Now, I I tread cautiously here um, because I, I do want to try and find the at times part and relate it to our specific situation now. When it comes to vaccines, restrictions, and our health, consider how potentially you are, I am, relying on our rights on either side and how we may need to surrender our rights for the sake of others, for the sake of unity. Whatever you believe about the vaccine and COVID restrictions, When you encounter those who disagree with you, at the very least, one way to surrender your rights and to apply this passage is to not rail against them. Why not consider them the weaker brother and deny yourself your rights in order to serve them? Now, you may, like me, not like wearing masks. And maybe you could argue that you have a right, even constitutionally, not to wear one. But perhaps for the sake of those who are nervous and other people's vulnerabilities and health, perhaps an application of this passage is to wear a mask. Because by not wearing one, you might cause people to sin or stumble or or not want to come to church or not want to hear about Christianity. I'm not saying, I'm saying perhaps in certain circumstances, you might forego your rights. I know when the mask mandate first came in and we had to wear them, even if you're walking on your own, because we're an LGA of concern, I was like, bro, I don't like this. I'm on my own. There's no one around me. I'm not wearing a mask. And so I would take it off. And then I got convicted that I was disobeying the government and just picking and choosing what rules I, I obey and don't obey. So I started putting my mask back on. But there's that sense within me of like, this is wrong. I have a right. I don't have to do this. I don't want to do this. But I think this passage is leading us to, well, rather than thinking so much about your rights, think so much more about how you can surrender them for the sake of others. You may feel like you have a right to your own safety and protection and your health. But maybe in order to maintain love and unity, you forego your right to health and safety and protection to welcome in those who may or may not be vaccinated and to not treat people as a second class or a different type of citizen. Now, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm bringing this up so you can start wrestling with it in your heart. Maybe you need to forego your rights in that area in order to maintain unity and not cause stumbling. In the future, We may have to put in um, restrictions on who can serve in what positions in the church based on what the government says about maybe kids workers or things like that with the vaccination. You may feel like I have a right to serve. I'm a child of Christ. I have the gifts. I can serve in kids. I don't need to do this or that. Well, maybe this passage, maybe this example is saying, well, maybe I can lay down that right 
for the sake of those who are nervous or potentially for the sake of the vulnerable children or whatever it is and thinking more about how we can surrender it rather than stand for it. Now, I say all this with caution. I say at times, um, I'm not trying to set up new rules or regulations and you may disagree with some of the ways I phrase these things. The point, the important thing is, is to deal with what's going on in your heart if, if some of these things are making you angry or frustrated or offended or fearful. And to be thinking about why is that? And, and what perhaps might I need the Lord to work in me? Paul finishes his argument about rights and surrender in chapter 10 with this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, that's those outside the church, or to the church of God, so inside the church. So don't cause a stumbling block if you can avoid it. Just as I try to please everyone in everything. And obviously Paul didn't just do whatever, like he didn't change his beliefs just for the sake of people. But where he can flex, he flexes. Not seeking, and this is the key thing I really want us to draw down on for this passage, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then, crucially, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that brings us full circle back around to our passage Brings us back to Christ. Verse 26, the sons are free. Don't have to pay the tax. Verse 27, however, not to cause offense, I'm going to pay the tax. Paul is imitating his savior. Paul sees in Christ this freedom to lay down his rights to serve others. Now, the tragedy of today would be to be left primarily thinking about rights and what we should do and confusion, et cetera, et cetera. If you are confused about all this other stuff, talk to people, ask questions, seek counsel. I'd love to chat with you. Read Romans 13, 14, and 15 three times every day. That will help you. Read 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 every day. That will help you. Chat about it in breakout rooms if you're confused. I don't want us to be fixated on this. But the greater tragedy today would be for us to miss the greater glory of this passage, for us to miss the opportunity it is not just to imitate Christ, but to see Christ and what he reveals about himself in this passage. Because this passage is primarily about Jesus, not about us and what we're meant to do. This passage is a clear revelation of who Jesus is. He is saying, I am the son of God. I am the one who is greater than the temple. I have all heavenly and divine rights. I'm matchless in glory and beauty and worth and majesty. The temple is mine. I don't have to pay the tax. Yet we see in Christ his willingness to lay it all down. He could have stormed to the tax office and says, don't you know who I am? Instead, he doesn't. The one who is the temple pays the temple tax. He pays a tax to support a building that in 40 years will be torn down. 
He pays a tax to support a sacrificial system that in a few short months, he was going to render obsolete by his sacrificial death. He pays a tax that will ultimately benefit the very ones, the high priests, who will put him to death. He pays that tax. And that's why the, the, the shadow of the cross looms over this passage. He pays the tax to the temple, to the people that are going to be the ones that, verse 22, are going to deliver him into the hands of men and kill him. You see, the glory of surrender comes in the aftermath of it. As Jesus lays down his life, it's the resurrection where the glory really happens. Jesus' way is upside down. He surrenders his rights. In this moment, paying the tax, but then in two months' time, when he goes to the hill called Calvary and pays our tax ultimately to God, where Jesus pays it all, not just a shekel or a half shekel, but he pays with his very lifeblood for the sins that he didn't commit, for the wrongs that he didn't do, for the thoughts that he didn't think, for the hatred he didn't hate. He pays it all on the cross for you and I. And so we see in this passage a glimpse and a shadow of that cross where he pays the temple tax. He pays it all for you and I. He surrenders his rights so that we can be the sons who are set free to surrender our rights for the sake of others. That's the glory of this passage that I do not want us to miss. He pays the far greater cost to bring us back to God. Does the idea of surrender, laying down your life, your freedoms, your rights and your privileges scare you? It does to me. I don't, I want to control my comforts. I want to control my freedoms, my liberties. What if I get taken advantage of? What if I lose out? Yep. That's what will happen. That's the way of Christ. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him, to at times surrender your rights like the Savior. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to take upon our sins, yet he does it for our good and God's glory. And so, friends, may I encourage you, consider today, how you too, though a son and daughter, though free, how you can surrender your rights like our Savior for the sake of others. I'm going to leave you with Romans chapter 15, where Paul summarizes a similar argument about whether we can eat food, sacrifice in temples, or what day we worship on. Romans 15, 1 and 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son Jesus to pay 
the price for us. That our reproaches fell on him, that he surrendered his rights so that we would be set free. And so, Lord, in view of his mercies, in view of his sacrifice for us, would you please help me and my friends and this church to be the type of followers of Christ who follow him in this way, knowing wisely and judiciously when to surrender our rights for the sake of others. And may we do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amém.